So as a church, we've been studying the book of Daniel all summer. We got two weeks left today and next week, and today is chapter 11. And as we look at this chapter, there is a lot to look at, but what I wanna encourage you to really focus in on are a handful of things. We see a prophetic description of various ancient kings. We won't get to all of them because there's that many. We will likely see and, and, and walk through this description of what is the Antichrist who has yet to arrive on the scene. And then there is also biblical evidence for a literal bodily resurrection of all humans. And this is something that is not just for the believer, but the unbeliever. But the believers are brought into God's presence and unbelievers are cast into judgment. We're going to look at that part of the passage as well. So there is a lot that is here. And if you recall, before we got to this section, Daniel in chapter 10, Daniel was praying for and waiting on God to give an answer regarding the future of his people, the Jews. And then an angel messenger arrives on the scene along with a few different characters. And there's all that context in who he is talking to. And now chapter 11 is the presentation of the answer that he has been waiting for. This is described as the fourth vision of Daniel. So Daniel has the first six chapters are six different stories, like Daniel in the lion's den and other things. And then the last six chapters cover four different visions. This is the last one that Daniel receives. So this vision is about the future. From Daniel's perspective, it's all future. For us today, 2022, we look back and most of this has already happened. But uh, So we look at it with a historical lens. But then the end of it has yet to happen. So we're kind of right in the middle ground with what we're reading here. So... I'm going to begin here with Daniel chapter 11, and starting in verse 2, uh, we're going to read a little bit of a description of the kings and the leaders who will arrive on the scene in the future. So we have the words on the screen. You can read this along with us. It says, and now I will show you the truth. This is the messenger telling Daniel this. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all, um, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But, do not, uh, but not to his posterity, not according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. All right, so the rest of this chapter is just like this. Constant descriptions of there's a ruler and now and then something happens and the ruler's gone and then the next ruler and then that ruler's gone and then the next ruler and that ruler's gone across the whole chapter and in this moment we see the very beginning ones for instance he's mentioning like, after the current king there's gonna be three more kings with Persia but then Greece as we've talked about in the other chapters Greece is going to be the new kingdom and the world empire the one ruling the scene. And that king, which we know now is Alexander the Great, but at the time, they didn't know who this was going to be. He's going to rule. He's going to dominate. In 10 years, he just took care of everything. But then he suddenly dies in his 30s. Nobody saw that coming at all. And his sons were murdered, so they didn't get to take over the kingdom. Instead, it got divided into four different kingdoms from the four different rulers. We see this with the previous prophecies and visions that Daniel had. And this is repeating that same history. And all his, like that is history, and so we can look at that with that um, lens. Now, I would read for you all these other kings and rulers and go down the list, but the reality is most of it feels pretty distant from us. We are going to look at a few, but it feels really distant because most of us aren't 
scholars in ancient Greco-Roman history. Like, I'm not myself either. And so I read them like, who are these people? Who, who is this representing? What is this here? What helped me to read through this with a little bit more, uh, I don't know, like a sense that like resonated with my heart was thinking if somebody back in say 1400 or 1500 AD, you know, so five, 600 years ago, was given this vision of this future country that would develop across the oceans in this land that people weren't really familiar with. And then there were going to be different rulers over the years. And every like four years, there'd be a new one or sometimes eight years. And we would look at that today and read that with such curiosity to say, oh, look, we can see how this was George Washington. We can see how this was Abe Lincoln. You know, like you could walk through the list. Here's the ones who have yet to arrive on the scene. And we would really treasure that sort of vision. Uh, You know, that's not a thing. But that is similar to what Daniel received at this time in which he is told, here are the kings who are going to arrive on the scene in the future. And he sees this explanation of the Persian king and the kingdom ending, which even that would have been a surprise because the kingdom was so powerful. And then the Greek kingdom coming on the scene, which is most of what we're reading of the rest of this time. So with that said, with that context, this is one of these moments where as you work through this whole chapter, which again, we're going to look at just a few portions of it and focus most of our time at the end of the chapter. But this is one of those explanations that's evidence for God. And so if you're to have conversations with coworkers or, or classmates, and they might say, like, what are some evidences for God? And there's a handful of good ones. This goes on my list around, like, number five or six that I would bring up with somebody if we get to those. There's others that I would start with. But with this, this is an explanation of how our God knew the future with what was going to happen. No, who else can be said, particularly in ancient history, to say, uh, in Daniel's case, He's received this vision from the Lord, this explanation from the Lord of future kingdoms. And he writes it all down. And then it happens specifically with how this actually played out before, hundreds of years before this ever happened. Who can say that about their God being given that vision of of what is to happen? And so this reveals God's omniscience here. He's knowing of all things and how he is in charge and orchestrating behind the scenes. So again, that's just one of the one of the explanations of, of how you can say proof for the Lord. And on its own, I think it's even solid on its own, but when you compound it with a few other different statements or explanations of evidence for God, it all works together really well. Now, the rest of this, we're not gonna read everything. If you were to read verses five to 20, you're gonna see this conflict primarily focused on two different kingdoms within Greece, like the the Greek kingdom as a whole. So after Alexander the Great, it went to four different rulers. Well, two of them fought a lot. And so a lot of these verses are describing the new one that comes into play throughout throughout this whole time. Let me just focus on a few of them because I find them to be more uh, thought-provoking or interesting. But there's, you know, you could look at all of them if you want to on your own time. So when you get to verses 11 and 12, We'll read, we, we read this. It says, Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. And he shall prevail, uh, or I mean, he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Okay, so it's like, well, who's this talking about? Well, if you were to walk through all these different characters, you see this aligning with actual ancient history. 
And in this moment, this is describing this battle between one guy named Ptolemy and then the other guy named Antiochus. He'd be Antiochus III, but Ptolemy IV and then Antiochus III. They are fighting. And in this battle, listen to this. This is uh, ancient warfare at its finest. So you have 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants were on Ptolemy's forces. And then Antiochus, he had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. Very similar in... Um, generally speaking, in size. And when this battle ended, he told me he won the victory over uh, the other guys. So this is an example of we can see, again, actual ancient history aligning with this prophecy that would have occurred hundreds of years later. When you get to verse 17, you see another example of how this plays out. Verse 17 says, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Well, one thing we learned in ancient history is that at this point, Antiochus III gives his daughter Cleopatra I to the other king and hoping for like an alliance and like work there. It didn't pan out. And this plays out in fulfillment of even what this vision was. And this leads to this underlying current in each of these either paragraphs or sections on these kings. And it's how does God's sovereignty interact with man's free will regarding these kingdoms? Did God force these different rulers to function in this way in order that they would fulfill what he told Daniel? Or were these kings like prompted and moved like robots? Is that why they fulfilled what God said? Or were they functioning in their own free will and their strategic minds of how they were going to you know, conquer or defend but God knew it was gonna happen this way. Like, how does this all interact? Well, in the same way that it interacts with these kings in this story, it happens even for us today regarding our own response to God. How does he move? Does he force us to love him back? Or does he know that we are going to either love him back or to deny him? Well, let's talk through this a little bit regarding, again, God's sovereignty and free will in that intersection. And that's quite the topic. But to give some handles on how this can generally be expressed or explained. Again, I say generally because there are certain moments, but we I'm always careful to make theological rules based on these unique exceptions and more so what do we see throughout scripture on a general basis. So when it comes to God's foreknowledge on these matters, you could explain it along these lines. That God foreknows what you're going to do or what these kings were going to do because the human is going to do it. We don't do something because God foreknows it. He just foreknows that we're going to do it. All right, so I'm gonna say that same thing, but a different way because it sounds so jumpy in certain ways. So if God knows you're going to do it, then you will do it. But that doesn't force you to do it. I'm gonna read it a third way. Like these are all different ways to say the same sort of thing regarding our agency or our sourcehood in our actions. And that's why we are responsible to God, but how it all still fits with his omniscience and knowing what's going to happen. So a third way to say this would be that we have freedom to act in different ways. And we know this because we're not controlled like robots. I like to use robots. But God's foreknowledge matches whatever we will do. And the fourth way to say the same thing is that his knowledge is not constricting our freedom to act in certain ways. He simply knows what we're going to do. And this is 
different than what's described as either theological fatalism or causal determinism. And that's kind of a whole nother pathway that takes our responsibility out of the equation. So one way, we get glimpses of this as parents, but it's definitely not, it, it, it's, this is an analogy that falls short because we're not omniscient. But it at least helps me to give a little bit of like, how do you tangibly experience something that is a theological truth on this matter? And so one of those would be, like I think about my own kids, I don't, um, they have the freedom to act in a certain way, but I've been watching them since they were zero years old. And they, uh, they tend to do the same sort of stuff. Once in a while, they'll surprise me, but usually the response is pretty standard. And so I'll know, and I could go through different examples, but if I were to put this thing over here, I will watch them. If they were to see it, they'll like race over. Like if I put a cupcake on the table, they're not gonna look at that and just go, that's interesting. They're gonna go grab it. Now, do I know that because I'm omniscient? No, I know that because I know their behavior. But in God's case, he knows what we're going to do uh, because we're going to do it, but we're not forced to do that. Anyway, that's just one dynamic in the, I don't mean to sound, uh, like this isn't, um, it's just one way to describe kind of a huge conversation on this matter. And I hope it might help you if you're wondering how does this interact with our own lives or even with these kings in who is, are they forced to do these things because God says it's going to happen? And I'd push back and say, no, God just knows it's going to happen because they do it. And if they did something else, he would say they did those other things. Okay, let's keep, let's keep going along these lines. One of the uh, elements in this chapter, so from about verse two to 19, it's several different kings and leaders in different ways. Some of it is the same, but then they're doing different things. When you get to verse 20, we shift gears and we focus in on one guy, Antiochus IV. He's the one that went by the name Epiphanes, right? God manifest. And much of Daniel is written about him. And it was great encouragement to the Jews at the time. Well, not at the time Daniel wrote it, but later on when they began to experience the persecution from Antiochus because they were told, well, I'll back up one notch. They were very excited to leave exile with Babylon and Persia and all that. Well, Persia at the time. They were excited to be sent back to Jerusalem. They got to rebuild their temple, rebuild their walls, rebuild their city. But they also knew from Daniel's prophecy that they were going to experience great persecution from somebody down the line. And based on chapter 11, they would have been able to track some of it, but not entirely know who this person would be. And so when Antiochus arrives on the scene, it's like, oh, this is the persecution that Daniel saw and foretold. But we can take heart. We can be encouraged. We can know that it's just for a time period. It's not going to last forever. And that's what we see here with even this portion. So this is the third or fourth specific explanation that there's going to be this ruler like Antiochus, or I mean this ruler Antiochus, and he is going to function in this way. And so that's where we come to now at this portion of the chapter. And I'm going to get ahead of myself on purpose with this. But in a, in a moment, we start to see how it transitions from talking just about Antiochus IV to then this future ruler, the beast, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who will rule. And he has yet to arrive on the scene, even for us today. So that's what the rest of this vision is. So starting in verse 20, I just want to read some of this because it gives the biblical language that is expressed when he did terrorize the Jews when he went to the city of Jerusalem. That wasn't even on a whim. 
this is a known prophecy. And this is the third or fourth that Daniel receives regarding the same person. So verse 20 says this, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle in his place. Here we go. Shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and they shall be broken. Even the prince of the covenant, which some people just, I didn't say this in the first service, but for us, uh, some people would say the prince of the covenant, in this case, if it is Antiochus, would be the one who was functioning as the high priest at the time. I think his name's Onan Third, but I don't really know those names very well. And it says, and from that time, that alliance, uh, that, and from that time, from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do neither what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. So again, this is describing the different acts and the actions, you know, of this, this ruler, Antiochus IV, who was one of, you know, he was in charge of, of that, yeah, of, of that uh, kingdom that was attacking the Jews who were setting up their, um, their whole city. Now, as we keep working through this, it's another reminder for us, particularly because of the specifics here. That in the same way that God was true to this prophecy here and all these different details and things that have happened in time past, so we can trust what has yet to happen. So the temptation is when you read about things in the future, you're like, yeah, maybe it will happen that way. Yeah, maybe not. You know, oh, maybe that's all metaphorical. Oh, maybe it's all like something. I just don't know what. And I push back on that to say, you know, in the same way that we see this specifically explained and happening, so we can trust what will happen in the future. There is a... Uh, that, that element of consistency across the past and what is in the future. So in this case here, we have Antiochus. He's doing this stuff. Um, I want us to see a unique thing that is explained here that isn't foretold in the other prophecies about Antiochus IV. And it's when he gets grossly humiliated before, uh, like with, against the Romans in a battle. And after that, is when he attacks Jerusalem. And so Daniel 11, verse 30 to 32, we'll just do 30 and 31. It starts off, it says, four ships of Ketim shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw and he shall, take, uh, he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And I'll read the next portion too, because it, it uses a, a biblical phrase that's important, the abomination of desolation. So it says, forces from him shall appear. I think this is verse 30, 31. Here we go. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So that phrase, abomination, that makes desolate is one that Jesus references when he's talking about the end times. And so it's, um, it's one of those links between Daniel's prophecies and what will happen. So 
the initial phrasing there about those ships of Gatim and how he is afraid and he withdraws, well, history tells us that Antiochus is going to battle against these Roman uh, leaders. And let me just read for you uh, what one historian says about this. He says, as the Syrians, this would be Antiochus, as they were moving to besiege Alexandria, the Roman commander, Gaius Pompilius Lanus, he met Antiochus four miles outside the city and handed him a letter from the Roman Senate ordering him to leave Egypt or face war with Rome. Then the Roman commander drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and told him that he must respond before stepping from the circle. Well aware of the might of Rome and having been a hostage there, which we didn't get into, but that occurred in history too. Antiochus was already taken hostage at one point. And also remembering his father, Antiochus III, his defeat by the Roman legions at the Battle of Magnesia, Antiochus IV, he stood in humiliated silence for a brief interval, and then he acquiesced to the demand. Antiochus withdrew from Egypt to Antioch in utter humiliation. So it is from there that he's like, all right, I'm going to get a win under my belt. Let's go to Jerusalem and just break out chaos. And he did. He rolled in and he, as these verses were describing, he sets up the abomination that makes desolate. He kills thousands and tens of thousands. And several Jews stood up against him. Some went apostate, some joined his forces and, um, you know, all that stuff. But most of them stood against him. They were all killed for their faith. And that's the explanation here that it even says this in the end of verse 32. Right, they, These are people, they will know their God and they shall stand firm and take action. And they actually fought against him eventually, if you're familiar with the name Maccabees or the Maccabean family. And they rose up and fought against Antiochus IV and got him out of there. And that's the description here. Now, when you hit verse 36, again, this is all this vision that Daniel's receiving. I can't believe this. It's like, if you're asking the Lord for a word, he like gives you a word or a verse or a statement. This is a whole breakdown of human history. This is wild. You get to verse 36, and now is where we start to shift between this sort of a, sort of a, a, a blending of, it's either a hard cut, now we're talking about, anti, uh, not Antiochus, but now we're talking about the Antichrist, or maybe the next few verses are Antiochus, but then we hit the Antichrist. By verse 40, it seems really clear. This is talking about a future leader who is yet to arrive in the scene of human history and will one day uh, be... Uh, leading and causing destruction. So we're somewhere kind of in that window when we hit verse 36. And I want to read for you some of this because you can, well, honestly, I think it's valuable to be aware of. So verse 36, it says, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. And he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. Now, Antiochus IV, he did a lot of this stuff too, but now we're starting to get into some stuff that, he didn't necessarily do, but the Antichrist one day will do. And so, like, my mind's uh, always attuned to uh, who are these kinds of people who might speak against God in these different ways. And so here you have, it says, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. Again, now it's like, oh, this is probably speaking about the beast. 
He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. When you get to the end of the prophecy here, starting in verse, well, not starting, but it's the end of the, the chapter. Verse 45 says, and then he shall set, or he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So in the middle, there's some more descriptions about what this leader does. And in all of this, we're reminded, here you have the Antichrist, or also described as the man of lawlessness, or the beast, or the little horn, and he definitely is a leader who is diabolical, inspired by Satan to kill and destroy. And you might be thinking, well, how can somebody so powerful and so strong be defeated? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2 has a fantastic verse that describes this for us, and I read it a couple weeks ago. It says this, then the man of lawlessness, this is 2 Thessalonians 2.8, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. So we see this description here of how the man of lawlessness is going to act and then how Jesus like intersects this moment right here. And, and there's a whole breakdown that much is described in Revelation. For our time... I would end there, but coincidentally, the prophecy continues for four more, well, three more, four more verses. And in our Bibles, that continues into chapter 12. If I could go back and give a recommendation to the ones who put numbers in the Bible, I'd be like, how about you start chapter 12 with verse five? Because we're still working on this. But nonetheless, they do this. So let's just talk through uh, these last few verses here of this prophecy. It's one unit. And it says, at that time shall arise Michael. So like at that time, the time of the end, it shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, which we talked about last week, I believe. And there shall be a time of trouble such has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. And that's a really important phrase for us, whether it's here or with, with what Jesus says about the great tribulation. It will occur at a time and it'll be in a way that the world has never seen before with any other nations or any other things. And that's important because, I mean, there's, there's pretty chaotic moments in world history, particularly modern history. But when we're talking about the end time, the end that should be here, it's on a scale that has never been seen before. So it, it continues, it says, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, they shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And that's where the period is, and in my Bible, like, the quote ends, and that's the vision that Daniel receives. That is quite the glimpse into human history and into the future, and for our time, we have to because verse 2 is so specific and it's such a unique way that it complements the New Testament regarding end time judgment. Let's talk about this just a little bit and then that's how we'll wrap up. So we see that there is this judgment and this eternal uh, 
response of the human body, like those who are dead, those who are in the ground, they rise. And there's a resurrection, yes, of, of Christians, we're familiar with that phrase, but also this body that is given to those who are dead and unbelievers. And then you have these two tracks, and they get divided up, and we see this in other descriptions in the New Testament too. Those who are believers are united with God forever. Those who are unbelievers are separated from God forever, right? So those who are united, they're with God in, you could say, in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, as Revelation describes at the very end. And those who are not believers, they are separated from God forever, cast into the lake of hell. Even those those, oh, this, this opens an, forgive me if the wording isn't the best because I wasn't going to say this, but I think it's okay to walk into this. <clears throat> like the, the holding places, heaven and hell. Heaven is the glorious place God is there and there's the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that are described in Revelation. And then you have hell and it's like, the holding place where those who are deniers of God are, and they are all cast into the lake of fire. So both groups, heaven and hell, have their eternal residence and, and places. And each one, they, they parallel one another. And so in the same way that those who are believers have a body that is resurrected and then with God forever, so those who are unbelievers have a, and receive a body and they are separated from God forever, tormented forever. And this description walking through the Bible is such a helpful one to see the, uh, the kind of the parallel between good and evil and it walking through those who are believers versus unbelievers. So the phrase, just to reread it in verse two, <clears throat> there is some, uh, they shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is a reminder for us on the side of those who are believers that there is a resurrection that occurs. There is great honor and great reward. There is a new body that is immortal and with God forever. And so it leaves us with this challenge, where will we reside when your body awakes at the final judgment? If you die before Christ returns, before some of these events happen, you are buried in the ground. Well, where will you go when your body awakens in accordance with Daniel 12? Will you be with Jesus or will you be apart from Jesus? Will you be with God or will you be with Satan? Will you be in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem or in hell, in the lake of fire? This is the challenge that all of us have to walk away with. The rest of chapter 11 is very interesting in a certain historical sense. But when you get to chapter 12 and then verse two, you have a very personal takeaway. How are we gonna respond? Not how does our mom or our dad respond? How did my grandparents respond? Or how did my, my pastor respond? But how will you personally respond to the work of Jesus to save you and the atonement work? So maybe you're thinking, well, what is the atonement work? Or how does that work? Like what? Like, I, I don't want to go to hell. So like, what, how, what does the atonement dynamic mean? And Romans 3 is a wonderful description of this. And even when I was originally preparing this, I wanted to just say, hey, read chapter 11 on your own 
and grab a good commentary. Let's talk about chapter 12, verse two, and just the whole time talk through it because it's that important. Um, but I really want, also wanted to talk through 11. So with that said, let me read for you Romans 3, this description in verses 21 to 26. It's very, it's very weighty to be concluding with, but I love it. It just walks you through the process. And so if you're a Christian, use this language. If you're a Christ follower, right, you are born again, use this language to affirm you in your faith and your response to God, which is which is reminded to us with communion when we take that, like we did a moment ago. And it's also displayed with baptism in which it identifies us with Christ and being a, uh, an adopted son or daughter in his family. So, so it's an encouragement in that way. And then if you're an unbeliever or you have, you know, you've never placed your faith in Christ, you're not born again, use this breakdown to say, this is what this transaction looks like before my creator. So Romans 3, 21 to 26. We don't have the words on the screen because I'm employing your audible listening, right? So here we have, it says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Again, Romans 3, 21 to 26, fantastic description of how atonement works and how that is applied to us as somebody who needs to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Maddie, you and the team, you guys can come up here to lead us in this final song. Fantastic song to lead us in a time of worship and personal reflection. Where do we stand? Where will we stand? when our bodies awaken, if indeed we physically die, but one day we will be raised and either brought into God's kingdom or judged and cast away from his presence. Let me pray for us.